you're listening to High Temperature Times, a not-so-hidden podcast all about the hidden industry. My name is Griffin Patterson, and I'm an application specialist with Harbison Walker International. As recently outlined in a great video by the World Refractory Association, the world as we know it would be completely unimaginable without refractory products. Take the modern car, for example. The metal for the engine is melted in a refractory lined furnace. The plastic for the interior, and the fuel that runs it, is created from hydrocarbons cracked in a refractory lined FCCU. The windshield is made from glass that's melted and shaped in a refractory lined glass melter. Even the tires use carbon black that's produced in a refractory lined chamber. However, I realize that quite a bit of the refractory industry is just a few steps too far away from the everyday person. So this episode, I'll be outlining a few other examples where refractories are closer on the supply chain and how the industry is critical for the good life we all know and love. The refractory industry is often referred to as the hidden industry. Few know about what refractories are, and even less know how they work, but nearly every industry relies on refractories to keep their processes running. Just look at the wide array of market segments supported by HWI. Ferrous metals, non-ferrous metals, cement, lime, glass, energy, environmental, and chemical. This month, I'm going to look at how refractories interface with the industries where nobody would expect refractories to be required. These industries edge just a little bit closer to the everyman, and thus might be a little bit easier to see why they're so important. When you look at moving into a new neighborhood, some people think about the cup of sugar test. Go door to door and ask your neighbors for a cup of sugar. It's a strange request, and only those neighborhoods with a strong sense of community would forego the raised eyebrow and offer up the necessary baking ingredient. Besides, if it's a really good community, they might get a plate of dessert out of it. But did you know that none of these houses would even be able to offer a cup of sugar without the refractory industry? You're probably about to ask yourself why sugar, a product that melts and boils away long before refractory materials are even needed, could possibly need such high temperature linings. But that's why you listen to this podcast to find out. Let's take a gander down the manufacturing process to see how sugar is made and why refractories might be needed for it. Sugar can come from many sources, such as honey, corn, sugarcane, and beets. The last two are the most common for your grocery store variety sugar. Beets are shipped to the factory where they are washed, sliced, and sent through a diffuser where the sugary juice is extracted from the sliced cassettes. This raw sugar juice is then sent through a carbonation tank to purify the juice. Keep this step in mind as it's the ticker in our discussion. After carbonation, the raw juice is clarified, filtered, and heated in preparation for evaporation. Evaporation occurs in a specially designed tower that removes the water, thickening the juice to a maple syrup-like consistency. This hot and thick syrup now has so much sugar in it that it can't stay dissolved in the solution as it cools. Thus, sugar crystals start to form. Once these sugar crystals are the right size, they're sent through a centrifuge and dried and stored for packaging. These packages are the very ones you have in your kitchen cupboards, from beets to cookies. So let's wheel it back. Carbonation is a very interesting chemical process that's critical for that delicious white sugar you use. This is a purification process where calcium carbonate is added to the juice to trap impurities such as sulfates, starches, ash, and even colorants. It, is all, it also increases the pH of the solution to coagulate proteins for filtering out. This very critical step removes up to 40% of soluble, non-sugar material from the juice. Without it, your one-pound bag of sugar would have nearly a half a pound of nasty non-sugar components in it, so it merits digging into the carbonation process a little more. Most sugar factories will have their own lime kiln. Much like the trucks that bring in the piles and piles of beets, limestone and coal are shipped to the lime kiln. 
These refractory lime kilns will take crushed limestone at temperatures above 1600 degrees Fahrenheit for calcination, where the calcium carbonate is turned into CO2 and calcium oxide, or calcium hydroxide, depending on the water content. This process also burns off any impurities and VOCs that might adversely affect the juice. The calcined calcium is mixed into a liquid slurry called milk of lime, or lime water, and pumped into the heated raw sugar juice. The CO2 produced from the calcining process is then bubbled into the tank, precipitating the milk of lime slurry into solid calcium carbonate particles. This process entraps non-sugar components to the juice into particles large enough to be filtered out in the later stages. Taking a closer look at the lime kiln, you'll see a tower several stories tall. In this, limestone is fed into the top of the kiln, where it falls through several stages. First, the lime is sent through a heating section, clocking in at roughly 2200 degrees Fahrenheit. The high temperature heats up the limestone hot enough and fast enough to drive off the carbonates as it passes through, forming calcium oxide falling down and CO2 going up. As it continues falling, it now needs to be cooled off for use in the sugar mill, achieved by blowing a cooling gas through it. Given the height, chemical reactivity, and the temperature of these kilns, a highly refractory, creep-resistant, and corrosion-resistant refractory is required. This is why they're typically lined with a magnesia-based refractory like Narmag. They're highly creep-resistant, due in part to their high refractoriness, and because they're a basic refractory, they won't react with the basic lime that they're calcining. One of my favorite observations from this process is that calcium carbonate, or limestone, is broken down into a soluble calcium hydroxide and carbon dioxide, only to be returned to a calcium carbonate in the carbonation tank. So you can't just chuck limestone into the raw juice to trap impurities, but by forming the calcium carbonate inside the juice, you can effectively chemically and mechanically purify that juice. So next time you put a spoonful of sugar in your coffee, remember the complex process involved in producing it and the refractories necessary to produce the lime water that cleaned all the gunk out of the sweet white crystals. When you think of high temperature situations, you might think of a sunny beach or an oven baking up a delicious lasagna. Or you might go to higher temperatures and think of fire, which is pretty hot, and it's probably the hottest situation that a typical person would be familiar with. Fun fact, you can actually gauge how hot a fire is by its color. If it's a dull red, it'll be around a 500 to 700 degrees Fahrenheit. If it's a very clear red, it's around 1000 degrees Fahrenheit. If it's a very clear orange, we're talking 1300 degrees, while white flames are reaching upwards of 1500 degrees Fahrenheit. Of course, fuel can also affect the flame color, so these are merely guidelines. I provide these to illustrate that fire is definitely hot, but in many refractory applications, we're looking at temperatures over 2500 degrees. That, however, doesn't mean that there aren't applications that require protection from your more standard flame-on situations. By this, I'm talking about burn buildings. If you're lucky, you've never had to utilize your local fire department. And if you do require their services, you'd better hope that they know what they're doing. Firefighters go through intense training regiments lasting nearly 14 weeks. This training process works on not only the firefighters' physical aptitude, but also educates them about the equipment, prepares them for the critical thinking required in these high-stress environments, and even puts it all to the test in a real firefighting exercise. These exercises include setting a building on fire and sending a team to put it out. There are a couple ways to do this. The most logical is to get clearance to train in an abandoned building. With proper approval and certain safety measures in place, firefighters can train in real fire situations on a real condemned building. Condemned building fires often occur naturally, so this training is truly the real deal, 
In fact, it's so real that between 1994 and 2004, 99 firefighters lost their lives during the training. Condemned buildings are not known to be structurally sound. So having a building that you know won't come crashing down on you can do wonders to increase trainee safety. These specially crafted burn buildings can be set on fire, put out, and then reset for another round of training without any damage to the overall building structure. You can even upgrade these buildings with special sensors, smoke ports, and fans to get seriously sci-fi level exercise. These training buildings still utilize real fire, which can get real hot as we've already outlined, so you need to protect the steel framework from degradation. To do that, the walls, floors, and ceilings are covered with refractory materials. Before I go on, let me just say that ceramics like refractories do not like it when they're set on fire and doused with hoses repeatedly. Like all materials, refractories expand when they're heated and contract when they're cooled. Doing this too fast means the surface of the refractory will expand or contract before the inside of the lining. So this will literally tear the refractory apart, leading to some very rapid thermal shock driven degradation. So we can't just use any refractory to protect these buildings. Instead, here we use a silica-based refractory. This material works because it has a much lower thermal expansion when heated or cooled. If it doesn't change size, it can't tear itself apart. Additionally, it's good to have some insulation value for your refractory so the heat from the flames doesn't pass right through the refractory wall and degrade the steel anyways. That's why HWI offers Greenlight Thermax D Online, which can be gunned directly onto the walls and ceilings and will resist the thermal shock from being hosed down while still having the insulating values to keep the overall structure cool. Burn buildings are a great example of how refractories bring value directly to those who use it. Without products like Fusilica Refractory Gunites, the lives of our servicemen will be put into unnecessary danger. Just a great overall stories of refractories putting intensity to work. The last example is one of my favorites, because it shows how important refractories are to putting food on your table. In the early 1900s, the world population was somewhere around 2 billion people. Over the next 100 years, that number boomed to the roughly 7 billion people there is today. Such unbelievable population growth can only be possible if we grow food rich enough and fast enough to feed the hungry masses. Without the production of synthetic fertilizer, it's estimated that the world would only have been able to support roughly 4 billion people by 2015. That means that the production of synthetic fertilizer is directly responsible for feeding nearly 40% of our global population. So how is fertilizer made, and why does this fancy dirt need refractories? Before I dive in, let me just say that there are many ways to produce fertilizer, and it's incredibly important that that be true so we can make it cheap enough and fast enough to produce all the food necessary to satiate my appetite. I'll be narrowing down the scope significantly to cover just a single one of these methods, though it's just a totally cool method that absolutely Deem's talking about. Fertilizer has three main components, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. We'll start with nitrogen. The main goal here is to create ammonia by stealing nitrogen from the air, which is a whopping 78% of our atmosphere. However, with ammonia being three parts hydrogen to only one part nitrogen, we need to get the hydrogen from somewhere else, and it's not coming from the air. While the bulk majority of the hydrogen for fertilizer comes from natural gas, which is a pretty cool process in and of itself, I want to talk to you about using waste from the hydrocarbon processing industry to produce hydrogen in a process called gasification. First, let's talk about the feedstock. In hydrocarbon processing practices, like oil refining, long hydrocarbon chains are broken down into shorter chains that can be used to make important products like gasoline. However, in the process of breaking down these chains, there's often extra carbon that gets left behind. This leftover carbon is heated to a high temperature to remove volatiles and other gases. 
That process is called coking. So what's left is a coked petroleum product, aptly called pet coke. Most places can't do anything with this, as it still contains high levels of sulfur and other heavy metals that will gunk up the works. Most of it actually gets shipped off to China, where they burn it for power generation, since regulations allow such low-grade fuel to be burned. However, some smart cookies saw the chemical energy stored up in this pet coke material and thought about how they could make ammonia from it. This can be done from a process called gasification. When you add energy to an organic feedstock, one of three things can happen. If an abundance of oxygen is present, like in our air, it will combust, forming CO2 and water, and heat, like your campfire. If you add energy with no oxygen present, pyrolysis will occur, breaking down the complex chemical groups into simple ones. This is actually what hydrocarbon processing is all about. The last option is adding energy in a very controlled atmosphere of oxygen and steam, with very controlled pressures and temperatures. With this, it will decompose into a synthesis gas made of hydrogen and carbon monoxide, called syngas. So our goal here is to produce a syngas that has as much hydrogen as possible and as little carbon monoxide as possible, since we don't need it to make fertilizer. To do that, we add a wet pet coke feedstock, the wet being water, and heat it up to temperatures upward of 3,500 degrees Fahrenheit. Since there's very little oxygen allowed into the system, the carbon-rich feedstock doesn't combust. Instead, it reacts with the little oxygen there is to form carbon monoxide. This carbon monoxide can then react with the steam to steal away the oxygen, forming CO2 and hydrogen gas. Cleverly, since CO2 is a waste product and a greenhouse gas, the system can actually react the CO2 with more pet coke to form more carbon monoxide again, which then produces even more hydrogen gas. It's a really great cyclical system that produces high-purity hydrogen with very little waste gases. Gasification processes actually have a whole lot of different uses depending on what they're making. If they want methanol, they can target a different ratio of carbon monoxide and hydrogen, or you can aim for a different ratio if you want hydrocarbons for jet fuel. But here, since we need hydrogen to react with nitrogen from the atmosphere to form ammonia, we're looking to reduce that overall carbon monoxide concentration. Since these vessels are seeing such extreme temperatures, we need something with extreme temperature resistance. Additionally, the pet coke used for the feedstock will form molten slag at these high temperatures. Slag is a leftover material that won't gasify and can have some really nasty chemicals in it that will try and corrode away the refractories at these high temperatures. So we need something with great refractoriness and highly unreactive with the slag. This points us to chromia-based refractories. High chrome refractories like RX95P have excellent refractoriness and will not react with the slag since chromia is a neutral material. Additionally, these materials have low porosity that restricts areas where attack can occur. High chromium refractories have been a staple of the slag and gas fire industry for decades and continue to be a critical part of the fertilizer industry. But the really cool thing about fertilizer is that it's not just the ammonia that benefits from refractory expertise. The phosphorus in ammonia production also requires refractory line vessels before it can be mixed up in your soil. Some researchers have said that Earth's commercial phosphorus reserves will be depleted in the next 50 to 100 years due to the increasing mining rates. That may be a little alarmist, since phosphorus used in fertilizer is returned to the Earth through excretion, and as long as we can reduce eutrophication, there will always be phosphorus available. However, the point on mining rates is an interesting one. The majority of the phosphorus rock coming out of mines in places like Florida over the last 10 years has been exceptionally clean, with no need for additional processing. However, the cheap and cheerful rocks are running out, and phosphorus processing plants will need to handle less pure rock in the coming years. This means phosphorus that will contain organic materials and impurities that need to be heated upwards of 1600 Fahrenheit to clean. The challenge in phosphor rock processing isn't the temperature, though. It's the chemical reactivity of phosphorus. 
Phosphorus is a fairly reactive material, being compatible with many of the standard refractory oxide families. So alternative materials like TZB zircon brick are considered instead. We don't want the phos rock pulling elements out of the refractory during calcining. The idea is to make phos more pure, not less. To cut a long story short, the fertilizer industry is a great one, only made greater through advanced technologies that utilize refractory materials to produce key components in novel ways that will ensure our planet is able to continue producing necessary foods to sustain our population for future generations. I think these examples are an excellent testament to how deep the roots of the refractory industry go. While many people will be familiar with some of the more common applications like boilers and cement production, these lesser known examples are really special, not only because of how important they are to such critical aspects of our lives, but because of how much knowledge is contained in even the most niche applications. I hope you enjoyed hearing about sugar production, burn buildings, and fertilizer, and maybe you even learned a few things along the way. If you'd like to learn more about these applications or any application where refractories are or might be used, reach out to us at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com. As usual, make sure you subscribe to High Temperature Times on Google, Apple, or Spotify for regular updates. Thanks for listening.